now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In this Just So You Know episode of Just Science, we discuss this year's Rapid DNA Forum with Chris Asplin, the Executive Director of the National Criminal Justice Association. The three-day forum, hosted by the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, was held in Alexandria, Virginia in August of 2017. This forum provided more than 130 attendees from the forensic DNA community, including local law enforcement and federal agencies, an opportunity to be updated on commercially available rapid DNA technologies. Presentations covered lessons learned from several early adopters and discussions on moving forward as a community. As one of the many distinguished presenters from the forum, Chris discusses how rapid DNA is moving forward slowly but surely, saving jurisdictions time and money, and that getting the policy right is just as important as getting the technology right. This episode was funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host, the Senior Director for the Center for Forensic Science at RTI. Today with me, we're happy to have Chris Astlin. Chris is the Executive Director of the National Criminal Justice Association and is very well known among many of us in the forensic science community. He has been involved in forensic science improvement for many decades. We won't count how many decades, Chris, but it's been a very, been a very long time. And in particular, recently uh, we had a, a rapid DNA forum in Washington, D.C. that was extraordinarily successful. We're very, very pleased. Not only a large number of state and local folks, but a large number of folks from around the federal government were there. And it was a wonderful contingent. We want to go over some of the key elements from that meeting here recently with Chris and also get his perspective on rapid DNA. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, John. It's uh, it's really nice to be here with you today. So interesting to me, rapid DNA is a, a real revolution with respect to the application of a fairly advanced set of technologies out in law enforcement. I was a bit of a skeptic in general about whether rapid DNA would ever be useful in law enforcement operations just from getting the practice right. I mean, how do you feel about that aspect of it? Well, I think that, you know, we had actually been talking about what we used to call lab on a chip for about 20 or 25 years. But I think I understood just the kind of arc of science and and the exponential speed at which it progresses that I was always pretty confident that we would get there. But as is usually the case with the application of science to law enforcement and to policy, it's usually not the technology, but it's usually the policy and the implementation that really is the most important aspect of it. So I I knew we'd get there eventually. I knew we'd be able to do it more quickly. You can usually take technology, get it smaller and faster. But the important thing was getting the policy behind it correct so that we were maximizing the potential of the technology, but at the same time, protecting people's, you know, civil rights and human rights, et cetera. Both Chris and I, for the listeners, we were at the National Institute of Justice, though I don't believe we overlap at all, or at least not to any significant degree. But I remember from that time around, oh, I guess 15 plus years ago now, the MIT Whitehead Institute was producing the glass chips that were some of the original rapid DNA 
core technologies. I don't know whether you right. had seen some of that stuff back in the bad old days at that time yourself. I do. I remember there was a, uh, I don't even know if it still exists, but there was a popular mechanics magazine, or popular science, I should say, and the cover of it was the Whitehead ship. And it was one of the few interviews that I ever refused to do for the Department of Justice. <laughs> right. Just because, because I, I knew that it, we just weren't there yet, and it was very popular to talk about. But the important thing with DNA from a forensic context has always, always, always been to move slowly and steadily so that we could always affirm the value and the trustworthiness of DNA and never move so quickly that we damage the gold standard, if you will. And back then, we just weren't close enough, and I wasn't willing to talk about it. But I think one thing we've done well in the forensic context is we've moved at a pace which has ensured its reliability, and it's never really caused us to go back you know, three steps after we jumped four forward. Yeah, I remember even five years ago, I had moved over to doing some scientific work with the Army, and, of course, DOD and DHS put an awful lot of resources into rapid DNA as well and still do yeah. because of their separate interests. The expectations in the military for rapid DNA were really out of line. When we did some testing of the systems at the time, even reference samples uh, five years ago were a bit of a challenge in terms of making sure you were able to get accurate and validated results. Well, and the, and the purpose is different, right? If you're looking at trying to identify somebody in the field for whatever purpose that you can then re-identify later if you need to under a, a different set of technology or in a laboratory setting, that's very different than whether or not you're convicting somebody of a crime. And so ensuring the validity of results in the criminal justice system really kind of had to move more slowly than they did in the military. And, and that was entirely appropriate. Yeah, so one of the systems, the British system, right, they're called para-DNA, is very much oriented mm -hmm. around that. It doesn't even attempt to do all of the SGR markers. It just right. does, what, five or six, right? Right. It's a preliminary test, really. Enlighten me a little bit in terms of your view about where technology and practice is now. I will tell you before you start, I'm struck actually by how amenable in particular the FBI is toward rapid DNA. They seem to be more amenable to rapid DNA today than they were to contractors doing any DNA analysis 10 years ago. Do you think that's because of the development of the policy here, or where do you think things really stand right now on, on the acceptance of rapid DNA at that level? You know, I think that in the early days, the FBI was appropriately skeptical of it. But at the same time, you know, they did a lot of investment in the development of rapid so that we could see if, in fact, it would work. But again, remember the FBI's perspective has always been a matter of moving slowly but surely and not getting too far ahead of ourselves and not wanting to ruin that gold standard. However, there has been enough research, there has been enough validation that makes the FBI, I think, comfortable with the fact that this instrumentation really does work and it is reliable in the context of also having to be technically reviewed so the model right now is that a DNA test may be done on a rapid instrument, but that's still going to go to a laboratory. That result is still going to be reviewed so that the result is still reliable enough to be uploaded into the CODIS system. Part of what has gone on, though, and I think part of the driver here was you began to see the development of what we call local databases that were not connected to CODIS. 
local law enforcement agencies began to realize that a CODIS is a good thing, but the likelihood I'm going to get a hit from Philadelphia to L.A. is pretty slim. The likelihood I'm going to get a hit from one neighborhood to another neighborhood in Philadelphia is a lot higher. And that's the value of DNA, right? When you begin to change the way law enforcement does business, that's when DNA begins to maximize its potential. So as you saw the need and you saw the willingness of law enforcement to go in that direction, I think that encouraged the FBI a little bit to be more accepting of RAPID, recognizing that RAPID was going to be a law enforcement tool, no longer a laboratory result. And that's really the key. And once law enforcement sees it as their tool and their evidence, they take ownership of it and a whole lot of other things change down the line. The key to RAPID is that it changes the way police do business. And that's how you maximize its potential. Yes, there's a couple of aspects that are interesting to that. One of them is that if they are going to do that kind of work with a technology like rapid DNA, they need to have procedures in place and structures in place that mirror things like breath alcohol. Every officer who wants to do a breathalyzer test not only needs to go through a certain level of training, but their system needs to be calibrated, and the forensic laboratory really almost always is in the loop with respect to the policies and procedures with which those uh, basically toxicological examinations are done. So I do worry. I would like to make sure. I'd like to see the law enforcement departments use rapid DNA, but I'd also like them to put in some of these other structures as well to make sure that they're using it responsibly and rigorously. I don't want to see somebody even arrested wrongly if we can avoid it, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. And as I said, it's always less the technology than it is the policy behind it, right? So those policies and those procedures will be put into place. For example, I think the common structure that you're going to see is what we call the wheel and the spoke. So you'll have particular police stations with rapid instruments in them, but the results will simply go to a hub, and that hub will be the CODIS laboratory, right? And those results will not go into the CODIS system until the results from that instrument are, in fact, confirmed by the laboratory. And so there are a whole number of fail-safe mechanisms in the instruments themselves. And if it's a bad result, it's just a bad result. And you don't move on and you do it the old-fashioned way, right? You take a swab, you put it in the FedEx box, and you, you ship it off to the laboratory. You are going to see a lot of those security measures put into place. Other security measures, for example, just to get into the machine itself. You know, how do you ensure that somebody is not accessing the machine that, you know, isn't allowed to? So you've got some of the instruments. They have both facial recognition, fingerprint recognition, security code recognition, all of that stuff to make sure that the system isn't abused. Of course, one of the nice things about DNA that makes it a little more robust, at least I'm going to put this theory out there, and Chris, you can respond to it if you like it. If an alcohol test is off, it'll be off 5% high or 5% low, and that has real implications, and the person in front of you is going to have those implications fairly or unfairly imposed on them. Generally speaking, these instruments are identifying somebody or they're not. Generally, if there's a tool that is improper, it isn't like your uh, your DNA profile is all of a sudden going to hit out of nowhere, <laughs> right? Right. The, the system isn't going to just finger somebody out of nowhere. The, the statistics are such that it just doesn't happen. You're exactly right. But there's even a more important aspect of it that's different than the alcohol test, right? The alcohol test is a test of a moment in time. 
Whereas if you get a rapid DNA test, okay, and the suspect wants to question it and says, it's, no, it's not really me, you simply retest it again, right? You retest it under a laboratory setting. So one of the beauties of DNA is you can always retest and that doesn't change. Again, very different from an alcohol test, which has to be a particular point in time. How much alcohol do you have in your system at that time? If there's contention that there was a problem with the rapid instrument, that it read that person's DNA wrong, that that's not really the person who should be in the system, you just do it again, and that doesn't change. And so that's a really, really important difference between DNA and some of the other tests that are out there. That's an excellent point. It is valuable. I can see from a law enforcement perspective, you know, I sometimes throw uh, the OODA loop out there. I forgot what the acronym OODA out there, but it's another military thing. Being able to respond rapidly allows you to respond in some ways more softly. If it takes you six months to find a profile, then it's a very, very different decision-making process and investigative process than if you can get that result in near real time. So obviously, rapid DNA helps law enforcement do more accurate investigations much more quickly than they could have otherwise. It kind of goes back to the phrase that I used before. It changes the way law enforcement does business. And so if you can eliminate a person within six hours or six days, imagine how that changes the allocation of your resources, right? I mean, obviously, if you implicate the person, well, then game, set, and match. But even the elimination of a person that quickly, it changes the alibis you're tracking down. It changes the interviews that you're doing. It's changing everything about it. So the sooner that you identify either the right person or the wrong person, the sooner you begin to save resources. And that's really, again, I go back to the other phrase of maximizing the potential of DNA. That's the value of it. The value of it is to change the way police do business so that their resources, whether they be financial, they be man hours or woman hours or work hours, those get diverted in a more directed way that ultimately saves time and ultimately time saves money. And so, again, that's why rapid matters more than anything. Thank you very much, Chris. This has been a great conversation. I want to encourage my listeners to look on the website, ForensicCOE.org, for all of the presentation materials that came out of the Rapid DNA workshop. We uh, originally thought the workshop would only have a couple of dozen people involved with it. It mushroomed to well over 100 people, but even that, I think, is a small minority of the number of people who are interested in Rapid DNA and the policy and technical directions and what the options are for instrument and so on. These were covered in great detail during the workshop, and I encourage folks to take a look at all of the workshop materials, especially Chris's excellent presentation, which was a centerpiece uh, of that day. You did a great job, Chris, and uh, thank you very much for being on Just Science. Thank you. Stay tuned for the special release season on leadership, which highlights various learning experiences and accomplishments from forensic professionals and other leaders within the forensic community. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.